at that time, again, we were mostly investing in psychedelic medicine, but really starting to look around the corner, what we realized was that psychedelic medicine is going to be, in our view, a really important part of the future of mental health. But there are so many other innovations happening also. And I, I named a couple of them before, but areas like what's happening in neurotechnology, what's happening in AI, precision psychiatry, that we realized, okay, we felt like we were in a position that we could kind of learn from the playbook that we had written with the psychedelic focus and expand it. Welcome back to the Trip Report Podcast, a production of Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. This week, I'm speaking with Greg Kubin, co-founder and partner at SciMed Ventures, a fund investing in frontier technologies creating new solutions for mental health treatment. Greg and I chat pretty regularly, sometimes weekly, about the state of play in psychedelics, neurotech, investing, consciousness, spirituality, and a rapidly changing world. As an early-stage investor in frontier mental health and wellness, Greg has a unique lens into what the future approaches and landscapes might look like. A recent focus in my writing has been the emergent paradigms that are nearing or have achieved tipping points in their acceptance and application. In this conversation, Greg and I discuss a handful of these topics, including the gut-brain access and the innovations afoot in diagnostics and precision prebiotics and probiotics, metabolic health and its impact on mental health, and tools like the ketogenic diet neurotechnology and brain-computer interface for diagnostics and therapeutics. We also discussed the origin story of Cybed Ventures and the Business Trip podcast, the pharmaceutical industrial complex, and the relationship between academic research and commercialization, as well as many other colorful tangents, digressions, and detours. And now I bring you my conversation with Greg Kubin. I think what I'm excited to talk to you about here on the Trip Report podcast is maybe you can correct my sort of framing in this, but an expansion of your focus for SciMed Ventures into a broader category of technologies or interventions or approaches for, for mental health. So maybe you could start by talking about the history of SciMed Ventures. Yeah. So... Siam Adventures. So I think a good place to start is myself and Matthias and Dina, who co-founded Siam Adventures. We had all been entrepreneurs working in and around startups for many years. And a couple years back, I was at a crossroads in my own career, kind of thinking about what was next, rolling off of my previous startup. And Myself and Matthias, who's one of my best friends and actually officiated my wedding, fun fact. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. He, we, we put our heads together and we're basically like, okay, where do we think the world is going? What, what are... What year was this? This or... was in 2019. Yeah. And what are... Where is the world going and what are areas that we are super passionate about? With right? the intention of a startup or a fund or just as a... I would say exercise. interesting exercise. I think we were definitely interested in either starting a company or investing in some capacity, I would think is where our looking back makes the most sense. Yeah. And psychedelic medicine was a area or is, is an area that is super near and dear to our own hearts. And we've really benefited from these medicines in our own healing and also I'll speak for me from a creative standpoint, from a consciousness exploration standpoint. And we spent a couple months basically going deep. We were reading research papers, probably a lot of the same papers that you were reading out of NYU and Johns Hopkins. We attended some conferences. We started reaching out to some of the earliest founders that were starting companies at the time. And we were getting more and more conviction. It was kind of that spidey sense that I feel like as an entrepreneur, sometimes you'll get that something is here, something is interesting. And we decided at a certain point, okay, like there's something happening here. The next logical step is, well, we weren't exactly sure, but one thing that we noticed was that there's an opportunity to help tell stories about how to 
build a business in this space because all these founders were kind of working in their own silos and there wasn't a storytelling platform. And so the idea of Business Trip emerged. Business Trip is our podcast that does just that, tells the story of how to build the business in psychedelics. And we basically just did some episodes with some of the earliest people we met. So the very first episode was with Dylan from Mindbloom, where I did a ketamine therapy treatment yeah. and reported on that. We interviewed Shelby from Double Blind, Ryan Zerger at Vine Ventures, and definitely jumped in the deep end, as I'm sure you've experienced with your own podcast, just like interviewing people on topics that were interesting to us and figuring out on the go, kind of letting it unfold yeah. is the way I would put it. But I think that period was super important for us because it helped educate us. It helped educate other people is what we were being told from others who were listening. And I think that's just so important because this is such a multidisciplinary space. There's such history. It's it's not just one thing. And so that was just, that was important. And so after a couple of months of doing that, we met Dina, who was one of the earliest investors in psychedelic medicine, Dina Berkabayeva. And we really hit it off. And we basically collectively had a shared interest in we realized not just telling stories about companies that were interesting to us, but also investing in those companies. And so we basically started to invest in a couple companies that then became a investment group or a syndicate that basically was investing one-off in companies where people could invest with us. Mm -hmm. We invested over $10 million in about over a dozen companies through that syndicate. Mm -hmm. And a couple hundred investors were investing with us. So felt like, okay, there's energy here. We're learning how to cultivate our community, our network, and learning how to work together in that capacity. And then after doing that syndicate, we basically thought, okay, well, not even after, while doing the syndicate, what is the next frontier for us? And a fund made the most sense for a couple of reasons. One being that with a syndicate, sometimes you have to raise capital that can take time and, yeah. it's, and you're uncertain how much capital you'll be able to raise for each company you're investing in. And in addition to that, Sometimes there's confidentiality issues, right? Founders don't necessarily want you to share their information with your whole network. Mm -hmm. And so we basically thought, okay, this feels like the right time to raise a fund. And at that time, again, we were mostly investing in psychedelic medicine, but really starting to look around the corner, what we realized was that psychedelic medicine is going to be, in our view, a really important part of the future of mental health. But... There are so many other innovations yeah. happening also, and I, I named a couple of them before, but like areas like what's happening in neurotechnology, mm -hmm. what's happening in AI, precision psychiatry, that we realized, okay, we felt like we were in a position that we could kind of learn from the playbook that we had written mm -hmm. with the psychedelic focus and expand it. Yeah, And so, you know, in my mind, it kind of felt like... um kind of like how a startup would operate, right? You start really focused yeah, yeah. and then you just gradually expand. And I think what's also important is you need to make sure that you're expanding with your own real interests yeah. too. And to all of us, broadly, mental health is very interesting and is clearly a huge challenge. Like we're in a, a crisis right yeah. now in this country that we just need better treatments. Thanks for that overview. And, you know, psychedelic medicine is presented as this paradigm or new paradigm within the the field of of mental health and others spirituality or creativity what have you but as you're alluding to and as you're now focused on there is a it feels like you know for those of us who've been focused on the psychedelic space our consciousness is expanding or opening to adjacent fields and adjacent technologies and different approaches. And, and maybe we can just kind of go through these like one by one, right? Like we, we've, we've talked about microbiome. That doesn't strike as obvious that the guts or the, the, the bugs living in our guts could be impacting our subjective experience. Mm -hmm. And so maybe, why don't we start with that one? Cause I think it's super, super interesting. What is the microbiome and like, why is this something of interest for promoting or aiding or treating mental health conditions. Yeah. Well, let me also, if, if you don't mind, let me please start by asking what is so interesting to you about that as an area? About the microbiome yeah. in particular? Yeah. You know, there, there is a kind of a phrase like everything is connected, yeah. right? Like that's a kind of a, a cliche, right? And, you know, on the one hand, that's true, right? Like 
everything is connected, whether you want to think about it like from physics or yeah. consciousness or what have you. But it's almost like a meaningless platitude unless you understand like how those things are connected. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so I think that the microbiome kind of presents this case study in something that is seemingly so far away mm. from either our common conceptualization of what mental health or wellness or illness means, which I think has kind of gravitated to be so synonymous with the brain and yeah. neural pathways and structures and stuff like that. And what I find interesting in this is like, it's, it's, it's almost like the complete inversion of that framing where it's like we're colonized by species that are not even human that mm -hmm. there is a symbiotic or a parasitic or commensal relationship with another form that is living inside of us in our bowels like yeah. near the furthest you know part of our body from our brain yeah. that seems to have such an intimate relationship with yeah. processes in the nervous system yeah. in the brain that then manifests in our subjective experience, our behavior, totally. our perception of the world. Totally. So that's what is like, from a molecular biology perspective, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. But from a, what does this mean about my experience as a living, you know, I think it has like philosophical yeah. ramifications and- Totally. You know what I mean? So- Love it. So first of all, you, great answer. You, you, you partially answered the question that you asked, which is nice. I mean, there's a couple things that are fascinating to me about the gut and the microbiome. One, this idea that evolutionary biologists believe that our gut was we actually- We are a tube. We are a tube. We are a tube. And our gut was developed before our brains. Yeah. So there's a lot of intelligence there. Yeah. Two, we have trillions of microbes that inhabit the gut and other parts of our body, but in the gut. And we are symbiotic. They help us digest and process food, among other things. And in addition to that, they produce neurotransmitters, mm -hmm. right? So they're producing serotonin and dopamine and GABA, and they have a direct line to the brain through the gut-brain axis. And so... Bugs poop out neurotransmitters, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty wild. Yeah, so... Basically, when I think about it like that, it's like, all right, well, what that means is that we can engage with those microbes, those microbial communities that have colonized, I love that word, they've colonized mm -hmm. within, to potentially alter the production of these neurotransmitters. So that's one thing that's interesting. And then in addition to that, for many people who are experiencing, could be mental health disorders, could be constipation, could be other like inflammatory disorders. Mm -hmm. There is really compelling research that shows that there is a lack of diversity yeah. in the gut and the microbial communities. So what seems to be the case is that if you're able to either feed something to that community mm -hmm. with prebiotics, mm -hmm. which they then eat, yeah. or you give them probiotics, yeah. which are their own bacterial strains, but they're already living, or you design new strains, you can basically modify the diversity yeah. within the gut in a way that then can potentially change how you feel, change yeah. how you digest, change you know things related to pain. There's like a, a lot of totally. potential applications here. And so... To me, that's fascinating and worthy of exploration. And I think one last thing I'll, I'll note is that, you know, there have been studies that have been done that take a the microbiome of a depressed yeah. mouse and then you transplant that into a healthy mouse and that healthy mouse now feels depressed. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think one last thing that's also important to note, it's still very early in all of this knowledge and understanding. Yeah. Like it's roughly 15 years of understanding so we're we're just at the the frontier so you use the term probiotic and prebiotic which in my world or my understanding is our you know prebiotics are foods that we eat that the microorganisms in our gut feed on mm -hmm. and 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 then probiotics are substances like or, or they're the actual bugs themselves, which Correct. like in can, kombucha, kombucha, sauerkraut, yogurt, et cetera. Kefir. 
Kiefer. Kiefer. Well, how do you pronounce it? <laughs> I thought it was Kiefer. That sounds right. Is it? Yeah, yeah, maybe. So, so on the one hand, it's like, here's an introduction to the food, and here is the organisms themselves, and took, I would imagine, like a lot of scientific effort to understand, like that that's what's happening, mm-hmm. and but those seem very like straightforward kind sure. of things, and I, and I imagine where the companies that you're talking to and investing in are or adding a layer of complexity or innovation yeah. to that concept of of either feeding the the microbiome or just adding to it in some way and i'm wondering if you could talk about how what what that looks like yeah. is it is it is it new bugs is it the measure is it like diagnostics is it understanding like how the you know ecological milieu should like i i'm i'm scratching at the edge of my understanding of this so i'm curious to yeah hear what that there looks are like. i mean what you just mentioned are actually a bunch of the ways that companies are now approaching this the first thing you said was introducing new strains that are engineered all right it's possible that the existing probiotics and prebiotics and like what can be done there is kind of limited in its scope mm-hmm. right if you can engineer a new strain mm-hmm. of a bug and introduce that into the gut that potentially could have completely different effects. Mm-hmm. So what's worth noting is those companies tend to be more clinical and uh, biotech-y. Yeah, yeah. Whereas other companies are just making food products, meals, you know, sweets, desserts, like all sorts of things. Interesting. And so that's worth noting. So there's almost like a consumer angle and a medical clinical Correct. that would presumably have to go through like FDA trials on the one hand versus like one that could be deemed a, a a food or a that doesn't necessarily have to be as as or a supplement yeah i mean a lot say. yeah I, I, and a lot of that has to do with like whether the company also wants to make medical claims yeah, yeah. right if they want it to be reimbursable right stuff like that so that is i would say one type of company that uh we're seeing on the other end of the spectrum, you're seeing a lot of companies that are really diagnostic focused. There's a lot that are just at-home tests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There seems to be a lot of variability about the reliability yeah. of those companies. And so there needs to be better phenotyping, basically better ways of classifying. Yeah, Because one of the challenges also is that the fact that there's like thousands of species of these bacteria and within each person there, I believe it's like a couple hundred. Yeah. But my species in my gut are different than your species right, in your right. gut. And the your species in your gut are going to be different after you eat your lunch. Right, right. And so, so it's the, a constantly changing. It's a constantly changing yeah. situation. And so. Well, also, one thing I think is important to know is like you, you use the term like the diversity of of species within it. And, and I think one of the 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 worrying trends within this field is like if you look at the microbiome of our ancestors in an, our evolutionary past yeah it was a much greater diversity and more robust or diverse ecology than modern humans today so there's some like there's some element of modernity which is like wreaking havoc on our totally. microbiome right and 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 showing up as a reduced diversity or maybe changing of the species that that is becoming pathological you might say is that how do you I think, think about so it? i mean if you're eating like heavily processed food it's like you know those microbiome or the ones that are within your body are probably really confused yeah. about who they're now engaging with mm-hmm. you know it's like who dis <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i'd say chaos is is one word yeah. i think one one thing that is worth noting and kind of interesting is i was just chatting with a researcher who was conjecturing that the microbiome really was introduced in a significant way in our ecology and our body when hominids started cooking food in hot springs oh and so there was all these bacteria there and then it just basically started getting introduced into our body on a more consistent basis i have not looked deeply into this i find it the stoned ape theory of the microbiome yeah exactly (laughs) and then in addition to that he was also talking about how you know our poop is rich our fecal matter in microbial life and that's why dogs are always sniffing other dogs 
And animals often like to eat other animals' poop because it actually evolutionarily is potentially introducing like more diversity into their own interesting microbiome. Yeah. Poop capsules. Poop capsules. That's a company. I mean, probably. I bet it is. I think it is actually. Yeah. I, I would, remember. Would reading... you eat poop capsules? If it was like many layers of capsulation. If it was flavored, matcha. No, 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 no. I don't want any flavoring. I okay. want it to you be. Want it compl- I, wa- I don't want it to break down until it reaches my large intestine. Got it. Okay. So, so it has to be like the, the casing has to be strong enough that it was, withstands the acidic environment of the stomach, makes it all the way through the small intestine, and then only gets released when everything else is poop. Would you do the same with, Would, a, with a mushroom? You know, like because it, well, it depends on where the mushroom is absorbed, right? Like, I'm 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 not sure. You know, if a mushroom is absorbed, I imagine it's in the small intestine where a lot of yeah absorption takes place, and then that gets into the bloodstream and goes through whatever processes that create the psilocin or what have you. Yeah, but we're talking about microbiomes that live in yeah. the colon, and so I, if I'm going to eat poop, I only want it to come in contact with my body at the stage which my body has created poop. <laughs> that's pretty sound logic. I think that's a good product right there. I like it. I like it. Would you invest in that? Um, I mean, that's that's like, the, that's that's. What such, would I need to see? So you what would would need, you, I'm thinking. Here's what you need to see. Yeah, you yeah. need to see donors who are who whose health is so robust. Yes. So you need a donor class. Um, just like, how would you set up this company logistically? You, you, yeah. you need to have like, you know, it's like, well, you, you know, yeah. I, I heard a, an ad for like colostrum, which is like, you know, the precursor to breast milk. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so there are people who are willing to part ways with their products of their biology. Yeah. So you got to like stratify who healthy people, individuals that whose poop would you, you would want, right? Because you had mentioned fecal transplants and mice, like. We'll come back to this. <laughs> and back after this, after our message from our neighborhood sponsor. Poop capsules. <laughs> so I think that puts a nice bow on the microbiome part of the conversation. You're, you're pooped. Pooped. <laughs> That's good. We can flush that one. <laughs> so this is... A- Personal interest of mine, this is all personal interest of mine. I think it's super fascinating. You didn't mention, I don't think, metabolic health, but I know that's something that you're interested in and focus on. And mm-hmm. so we should maybe spend a little bit of time talking about what that means. And in, again, in relation to mental health, behavioral health, subjective experience, but, and, and you can add on to this, but maybe I'll set it up with, it seems like there is a increasing clear evidence that one's metabolism, which you kind of think of as just like calories in, calories out, or processing food to create energy, but it's really a larger thing than that. It's like the mitochondrial function and health is like another way of this is framed. Seems to be growing evidence that the target of metabolic health or fitness is actually leading to promising treatment outcomes for pretty broad range of of what are kind of thought of as like brain conditions mm-hmm. schizophrenia bipolar even ptsd and i think like if if bessel van der kolk's the body keeps a score was kind of like this inflection point in how we kind of conceive of trauma and early stage childhood experience in the development of of one's mood behavior subjective experience mental health the book by i'm going to forget his name brain energy mm. feels like another introduction to that like m- maybe scientifically early but culturally seems as like huh you know what this makes a lot of sense i'm kind of meandering my way to this but like the food environment and the things that we are eating and putting into our body mm. especially you, we mentioned processed uh foods and the impact that that has on the microbiome but the impact that that has on just our system in general we kind of forget that like our brain is part of our system and like metabolic health or obesity or diabetes are like conceived of as like this a separate thing mm. from 
psychiatry, psychology, mental health, behavioral health. And again, this early research from that's looking at things like the ketogenic diet or low carbohydrate mm-hmm. restricted diets that are changing the function of our energy production at a cellular level yep. is manifesting in positive outcomes in what are conceived of as usually like, again, different parts of the body, different parts of the system, but totally connected, related. Do you have anything to add to that long-winded uh, diatribe? Yeah, I mean, I think you you laid it out well. I think that it's very clear that food or lack of food yeah. can be medicine. Yeah. And that has been uh, an ancient yeah. practice. So, you know, more recently, like you talked about the ketogenic diet, interestingly, th- that has been used to treat epilepsy for like 100 years. 100 years, yeah. And so there's very clear evidence that that works. There's more recent evidence that it could be used to treat bipolar. And so, yeah, I think that there is an opportunity for there to be companies that produce products and or services. Maybe that's meal delivery. Maybe that's support through telemedicine, you know, that ultimately can help people treat these conditions non-pharmacologically, mm-hmm. right? And so, again, th- this is what's so fascinating to me right now in the state of mental health. It's like, you know, someone has epilepsy, potentially that they can treat that with a ketogenic diet, but then at the same time, potentially that could be treated with a neurotechnology yeah. that, you know, stimulates a part of the brain that ultimately results in lack of seizures. And yeah. so, yeah, I'm, 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 really interested in that. And at the same time, I think there also could be an opportunity, you know, a product or service that potentially is used by employers for their employees, Mm -hmm. right? That helps them select meals Mm. and gives them better nutritional info Mm. about them. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a field that feels very much in more modern science is getting more energy around it. I would say there's been some company formation I don't think it's a full-on category yet, yeah. but I expect more activity in the coming years for sure. Why do you think that is? Is that just because it's a it's a more it's a newer framework, or is there less evidence that it's like it can be a, a, a technological or innovation solution? Yeah, I think I think there's just hasn't been a huge amount of research yeah. that's uh, supported it, but there has been just to be clear. Yeah. And then I think the other part is just we're kind of living in like a pharmaceutical industrial complex. Mm. So it's a lot easier or historically it's been a lot easier just to work with the status quo than try something completely different. And I think with some of these, you know, like ketogenic diet, for example, like adherence can be challenging, right? To really modify your diet, especially if you're living somewhere, like most places, it's very hard to actually adhere to it. Having said that, I did just see a, a study that came out that showed that in a recent ketogenic diet, for mental health, like there was really strong adherence. And I think that has to do with the fact that when there are people that are really struggling and their life is just so difficult due to the condition, they're willing to actually adhere. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's similar in terms of like the way we talk about psychedelic assisted therapy, where there's an element of preparation, support, and then integration. Like it's almost like a model for like a lot of other things. Like diet and onboarding to a, a a ketogenic diet, for example, you know, I, I would imagine, well, I should say when I have attempted to do it, it's very easy to fall off and miss yeah. the mark. And like, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a pretty intense undertaking. And so yeah. I, I, I could have benefited from a, a coach or a guide or a yeah. community or How about you know, a, support a glucose monitor. Yeah. But then also a, wristband that zaps you (laughs) (laughs) like a like a rat operant conditioning for ketogenic diet adherence yeah i think that's a little too intense for me but well actually one of the future guests of the trip report is a guy named pedro taxiera he's a researcher at university of lisbon and he's looking at psychedelic assisted behavioral change Mm -hmm. namely around diet, food, nutrition, exercise. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the patterns, a lot of the things that keep, I'll speak from my own experience, a lot of the 
the things that keep me canalized in patterns of thought or behavior or what have you that are not beneficial have been lessened mm. like the the weight of them has been lessened and so i'm cautiously optimistic that that is a, an approach for combining these two different yeah. things in a way totally i think w one other thing to note is that there was actually a study done a couple of years ago that that looked at which foods are best for your mental health. Mm. It was kind of a meta-analysis of all the studies that have been done it's by this guy named Dr. Drew Ramsey, who we actually just had on our podcast. Oh, sweet. And it was interesting, like the, the top foods were, a lot of them were like bivalves, like oysters and clams, water. Selenium. Yeah, selenium. But like the, the omega-3s, mm. uh, a lot of vitamins and mm -hmm. minerals. And one thing that I was thinking about was like, we just have a, a lack of awareness of this information culturally. And then I was thinking like, yeah, like who's doing the marketing for the oysters? Yeah. Versus who's doing the marketing for Nabisco? Interesting. Right? We gotta, we gotta get the big, we gotta get Unilever and Nabisco and Merck and Johnson and Johnson to start advocating for algae and for bivalves and- Yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. I, no, I, you're, you're, you're right. Like there is a, there's a cultural habit that one like and and this is obviously changing in some circles but it's not a first port of call for like i would think most doctors and mm -hmm. and specialists who are trained in a pharmaceutical industrial complex and, and intervention food, and a food, industrial, and a food complex. industrial complex where it's like this is a bit of a tangent but like i was talking to i was talking to my parents last night about this might be contested but like the most significant breakthrough in health and health span and medicine came from like sewer systems and water treatment, you know, back in the day when just like, it turns out if you just like take feces out of the water, like everybody's a lot healthier. Mm. And, and I'm like, but microbiome. <laughs> <laughs> there's always a, there's a yes, but, <laughs> but. You're good, man. You're really good. <laughs> Damn, I'm struggling here trying to get the next one and I can't do it. Uh, but like, I, I kind of feel like, what is the sewer system of like our information mm. environment mm. and the food environment? So, um, But maybe this is a good foray into neurotechnology, which is another area that you're focused on. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what, what is neurotechnology? What is that field? consist of and why is it exciting i i feel like in like the previous answers i would love for you to start with <laughs> why you have a bit of interest in neurotechnology here's why i have a bit of interest in neuro neurotechnology when i started writing the trip report about four or five years ago what i discovered in my research is that digital health technology it was kind of going through a similar adoption curve or like the, the prospect of apps, telemedicine, telehealth, but also like games, like Akili Interactive was like this first FDA cleared video game for ADHD. And so it was like, there was a similar nascency and emergence of information technology as therapeutics, right? And you know, virtual reality is one of these fields that's been around for a long time. It's actually also similar to like psychedelics and that mm. it's been around as an idea or a theory or as a maybe a clunky, cumbersome interface, but is also kind of maybe reaching some inflection point where it will become more ubiquitous. Mm. The fidelity of the experience is improving, but input to our sensory system in whatever capacity, it, you know, in, it's it's going going back to this idea that everything is connected, but it matters in what way. And mm. so, whether that is like technologies that are stimulating neural tissue through the skull, with like uh, I think it's direct transcranial current or focused ultrasound, like there's a way of stimulating tissue. There's a way of experiencing perception uh, like namely in like virtual reality where these experiences are making an imprint on our mm. nervous system right mm -hmm. like 
So the concept of experience-dependent neuroplasticity feels like this tool that, or, or not this tool, but this fact of life that could be a target for therapeutics, yeah. right? And I will stop talking. Okay. Now. No, it's, again, good, nice foundation. Thank you. So I think of neurotech as the ability to both image as well as stimulate. Some of the factors that are making neurotechnology even more interesting today include miniaturization of sensors. You have AI and machine learning capabilities that can take vast data sets mm -hmm. and make sense of them to actually create some sort of recognition of potentially a disease state. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, we have a better understanding of our entire physiology. Like we have this in the brain, like the network-based approach to understanding the brain networks or the circuit-based approach, right? Yeah. So it's not just one part of the brain. But, right, right, but how they're all connected. Exactly, how they're all connected. Yeah. And so you put these pieces together and there's some really frontier treatments that are being developed. So TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, has been around actually for some years now, yeah. but can be really effective in the treatment of depression. You have some novel treatments that are happening around focused ultrasound, yeah. right? What's interesting with ultrasound is it actually can go very deep into the body, whereas TMS is more on the cortex level. Oh, interesting. So you can stimulate deeper regions of the brain. Also worth noting with focused ultrasound, it doesn't just work on the brain. You can also do it in other parts of the body. So recently there was a FDA approval of the ninth ultrasound or focused ultrasound technology. It's basically can use the, the ray to ablate a tumor in the oh, liver. Oh, wow. Interesting. And so that's a high intensity yeah, treatment. Yeah. In the brain, you're going to go on a lower intensity. Got it. And when you do it at a lower intensity, you can basically stimulate parts of the brain. Yeah. And so that's super duper interesting. And then what's also cool is that when you kind of put all the pieces together around the imaging and the stimulation, then all of a sudden you're really at the frontiers. But on the imaging side, you have companies like Kernel, mm -hmm. right, that are using FNIRs, yeah. which looks at changes in blood oxygenation in the brain. And, you know, the MRI, which is There's this huge big bulky machine, machine yeah. is getting mobile. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that is really freaking cool because, you know, it just potentially creates a much more accessible way of imaging and then connecting to the treatment using AI and machine learning. And then I would say on top of that, as we get a better understanding of the brain, because the brain very much feels like a frontier of the body that we still don't really understand. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of novel treatments that, you know, historically one would never have considered to even be possible. So for example, there's a company called Sparrow Biomedical, and they have created a device that can target the vagus nerve and the trigeminal nerve, which is like near the ear. Mm -hmm. And when doing so, it can basically produce dopamine in a way that can be useful for people that have opioid use withdrawal. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And so basically just through stimulating that, that part of the brain, yeah. are you then able to refill the yeah. part of the brain that someone may be craving? They're actually starting with infants, sadly yeah. and interestingly. Yeah. So to me, within neurotech, that was kind of the first category that I got really excited about after psychedelics when we mm -hmm. decided to expand our focus, partially because it just feels kind of magical, to be honest, Yeah. in that we can use these lasers or, you know, we can basically use energy to, to <laughs> yeah, lasers. lasers. Yeah. And then if you want to go more frontier, we're talking more brain computer interface, which yeah. is when you're taking an electrode, you're putting it on the brain, you're using signal processing to actually read the activity mm -hmm. of the brain mm -hmm. and either there's reading and writing capabilities. So you're mm -hmm. actually either taking information from the brain yeah. and moving it to a computer or you're taking information from a computer and you're moving it to the body, which could be used for regaining motion for people who ha are paralyzed. It could be used to regain senses, yeah. speech, auditory capabilities. Like we're at that point now. Where is this in like the adoption curve between science fiction and clinical arrival? 
Well, what I just described, for example, of like the ability to regain motion in limbs, like or in prosthetic limbs, that has already been demonstrated in, I think it's like almost 30 human subjects in research settings. It's not FDA approved yet. Yeah. So that's that's happening. I mean, again, you, you're going to need to do a bigger trial and yeah. need to show the things the FDA likes to see, but that's happening uh, already. What about the focused ultrasound piece? Where Where is that in sort of the... I mean, that is, I would say in the research setting, but moving to the clinic mm -hmm. in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. Like that's that train is leaving the station. That is leaving the station. Yes. Interesting. Because I mean, the way that I found out about that was uh, there's a meditation teacher by the name of Shinzen Young, who is friends, collaborators with a researcher in this field. I think his name is Jay Sanguinetti. And there was like a a piece on how, you know, he has been involved in that research and, you know, he's a longtime meditator who is, you know, capable of creating wildly altered states for himself, you know, mm -hmm. through his own practice. And he described the experience of the focus ultrasound yeah. in a like contemplative neuroscience frame, not a necessarily a therapeutic, but as like the deepest you know, samadhi state he's ever been yeah. in or something like that. So yeah, they, they've done studies with human subjects get, inducing deeply meditative states. Uh, there's also a lab and it's, it's amazing work that they're doing. And yeah, it beckons the question, well, if you can induce meditation, what other states can you potentially yeah, induce? Yeah. And then what's also interesting and kind of tying it all back to psychedelics, there's someone who I met recently whose name is Nico Regente, who runs the Institute of Advanced Consciousness Studies and they are doing transcranial focused mm -hmm. ultrasound studies for meditation and also they're interested in doing one that hits the pineal gland that's wild yeah that's gonna be wild. i want to sign up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the relationship between academic research and then like venture backed biotech commercialization like yeah are the researchers who like kind of tinkered with this you know the people that bring it to the market or is it like a handoff process is it yeah what's that world like yeah so it is let's say somewhat idiosyncratic in that there's a couple different flavors. Mm -hmm. So I guess, first of all, when researchers in university settings are doing this research, the intellectual property actually usually belongs to the university. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to actually commercialize it, you need to work with what's called the tech transfer office, yeah. who has a team of people that know all the intellectual property that's owned by the, by the university, and then they license it out. And so that's one part of the puzzle. But then what you'll find is that with among these researchers, some of them are the people that decide they want to go ahead and commercialize it themselves. Like that would be who's somebody that comes to mind? Emmett Atkin. Emmett Atkin. So yeah, so like in the case of Emmett Atkin, he commercialized his own research. In other instances, you have people that are just more in the position of licensing it out. Yeah. And then you have other instances where people are involved as advisors or co-founders, but not as involved. So there's many different flavors of how to go about it. Another example, by the way, of someone who has commercialized it themselves, Jacob Robinson of Motif Neurotech, mm -hmm. which is also a really interesting neurotech company that's minimally invasive. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, so it, it really depends on the goal of the the, the researcher. I mean, it, what's worth noting from an investor standpoint is if it's that person who's going to go ahead and be the entrepreneur as well, they it's it's for, it's kind of it's really hard to yeah. both be a researcher and an entrepreneur and you know that combination. But what we look for is what we call like the entrepreneurial scientist, mm -hmm. right? And so what I like about that archetype is that they as like a scientist are typically very methodical. If they run a lab, I find that running a lab is kind of like a mini startup. 
You also need to apply for grant funding. Yeah, yeah, so you're yeah. kind of been fundraising. Yeah, yeah, you've been yeah. building a team. You've kind of been doing the little things that I think is a good training wheels for starting the company yourself. Yeah. yeah. But you know, it's it's funny. We we just interviewed Jacob on our podcast, and one thing he said is that he found that fundraising was way harder than he anticipated and get just getting so many no's. And I guess in academia, you're not getting told no as often, but he's so sharp and such a hustler. And yeah, I, I think very highly of him. We said yes, clearly. <laughs> yeah. What are you personally interested in? Where are you spending your time? Mm. From a creative, a spiritual, uh, exploratory. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just moved back to New York City, and the first thing I bought was a typewriter. Nice. Which I was inspired by Charles Bukowski. Yeah. And he had a typewriter. And one of the cool things with the typewriter is that you just have to keep going. You can't, it's not like a Word document, you know, you're they're not like a typical that Word processor. You just got to keep yeah. going. And I just love the sound of it. It's like whack, 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 whack. And uh, so I've been, ex I've been, I have a journaling practice. I've been journaling for many years, which has been both helpful for mm, just creative outlet and also mental health. You get it on paper, mm -hmm. it all of a sudden is less consuming to you. And yeah, so I've been kind of experimenting with transitioning my journaling onto the typewriter. Right. And that's been. Yeah, I'm like very excited by that. And nice. I went to this store near Chelsea that I think is the last store in New York City that sells typewriters. Really? Yeah. Wow. And it's very old school feeling like, yeah, just the, the, the vibe was great. Typewriters are heavy. They're, they are heavy. They're very fact. heavy items. But you know what? There's no electricity. There's no battery. It's just ink and the WAP. What? Yeah, offline so, mode. Interesting. That's right. There's no electricity. I guess that's right. It's all mechanical, right? You put. How much does a typewriter cost these days? A great question. I paid a couple hundred dollars. Did you? Yeah, I was not expecting to pay that, but was uh, it a new? Was 1964 it a... Smith Corona Clipper. Smith Corona also makes guns. I think that's Smith and Wesson. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I I did a little price comparison online, and the, like the same typewriter I could have bought for. I mean, this like, was just like refurbished. It's yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. refurbished, and like I don't want to have to like deal with the customer support of the typewriter company. Yeah, right. I don't no. even know if that exists. That probably today. does not exist. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna pay up a little bit, yeah, and I'm going to just the typewriters are Lindy. They're super lindy. They've been around. They will be around. They said that this one should God, be God, that's for... a great word. I'm so glad you said that. Mm -hmm. Can you... Let's let's end on this. Lindy. What is Lindy? Lindy is something that ha has been around for a while, is more likely to be around for a while. Yeah, it has staying power. It has staying power. The amount of time something has been in existence has predictive power over how long it will be That's the theory. in existence. Grandma's right? grandma's recipes. Yeah. Some could say the longer that Bitcoin is around, the more Lindy it is. But it also, like, see, this is where I don't, like. Say it. Well, I mean, religion, right? Like, mm. the religion's been around for... Well, what, what, what iteration of religion? Well, that's, tr that's the thing. And where my mind is going is like, as religion falls out of favor, mm. something has to fill that religion shaped hole in yes. the human psyche. Yes. And I feel like that is. TikTok. Politics. <laughs> TikTok, right? <laughs> uh, culture wars. Yeah, I'm going into a dark place. Yeah. Here, but like, it's almost like there's just predictive power about how long it will be in, in the future, but like the non-obvious utility or practicality or survival benefit that comes from it, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I think religion is actually a good example of that. There's yeah. some there, like evidence to suggest that it's like, there's research on this that like religious belief and community and the things that go along with it confer some mental health salutogenic benefit, mm -hmm. right? For and so that people who have that have greater resilience to mental illness. I mean, I just read Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. You read it? Sure have. Right? And one could say that it was spiritual connection that 
Viktor Frankl attributes to his survival. He felt like he was he he was able to kind of connect with the experience, which is horrific, and of being in the Holocaust, and basically connect with something bigger than himself, and actually find meaning in the experience. And and it, re, it reframed the experience where he was actually thinking like, what can this experience teach me? Yeah. And yeah, I think it could, I think there's a lot of, I don't know what the word is, saluted, salutogenic, salutogenic health promoting or enabling of like self-healing or something like that. Nice. Good word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, salutogenic poop capsules, salutogenic poop. This podcast is brought to you by salutogenic poop capsules. I think that's the brand. I'm going to buy that domain. See what I'm looking forward to getting (laughs) retargeted. (laughs) <laughs> you know what you could do you could also send mailers <laughs> first poop capsule on us free samples free sa- sample <laughs> nice your psychiatrist's office <laughs> nice i like it uh thanks greg this has been fun thank you where do people on the internet find you well simed ventures our website is is that simed.ventures c i is that p s y m e d ventures and that's where we have the, the hub of our investing business trip the podcast you can find on spotify and apple music and all the other platforms and then i tweet sometimes less frequently you've been, these days you've been less frequently i just i've been in the world you're smart man. of the world good for you at kubeans touch touch grass uh, typewriter <laughs> typewrite <laughs> touch grass and typewrite yes thank you sir all right thank you zach yeah thanks for listening to the trip report we hope you enjoyed it you can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com. This podcast is a production from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to beckleywaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The Trip Report is produced by Cooler Production Company with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.